Women's Health Melbourne is a boutique specialist fertility and women's health practice, caring for women at all life stages. We're proud to provide world-class holistic medical care, including IVF and a range of other fertility treatments. We provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our two Melbourne locations are in Fitzroy and our new state-of-the-art Caulfield practice. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and you can follow both Women's Health Melbourne and Dr Radia Lou on the socials. Confused about fertility and trying to get pregnant? Want to know more but don't want to flag it to the world? Welcome to our podcast, Knocked Up. I'm your host, Geordie Morrison. I have no medical background, but I'm a 40-year-old woman who has gone through freezing her eggs. And I'm joined as always by Dr. Raylia Liu, a CREI certified reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist. Welcome back to Knocked Up. And today we're doing a listener request on ectopic pregnancies, something that we hear a little bit about, Raylia. Yeah, ectopics are actually, they're quite common. They're more common than you think. So I guess the first thing we'll talk about is how an ectopic happens. So an ectopic ectopic pregnancy happens in the way that a normal pregnancy happens, really. So generally you have sex to get pregnant or you have an IVF embryo transfer because an ectopic can happen in IVF too. Uh, But those two different scenarios, ectopics happen in slightly different ways. So let's talk about natural. So when you have sex and sperm deposits in the vagina, or if you're not having sex and you're self-inseminating or you're having an IUI, same, same, there's sperm coming from down below, that sperm has a journey and it has to swim up through the uterus, down the fallopian tube, towards the ovary. And it's actually in the end, in the fimbrial end, we say fimbri, they're the beautiful fronds of the fallopian tube we've done an episode before on the anatomy on on all the parts of the female body so you can visit that episode again to remember what the fimbri are but they're the ends of the fallopian tube that I sometimes describe like a beautiful sea anemone they look like a little sea flower and they they have the sperm yeah so they have fronds and they have little what we call cilia which are tiny little um they're hair-like structures that kind of coax the egg actually Coax the sperm in the direction of the egg and coax the egg in the direction of the sperm. So they're kind of like the matchmakers. And they uh, basically allow the sperm to reach the egg in a healthy fallopian tube. And a healthy fallopian tube is designed to, through both cilial action, but also through what we call peristalsis, which is muscular contraction, to coax the embryo, which is the very earliest stage of human life when the egg and sperm meet and the egg is fertilized from the end of the fallopian tube down to the womb. And that process takes about a week actually. So I always say that the IVF lab is trying to be the world's best fallopian tube because that's where your embryos are actually culturing and growing and dividing in the natural world. The embryos reach a stage known as blastocysts and that's after about between five and seven days of development in nature. 
and just to take a little detour, that's why in IVF, when we grow an embryo to blastocyst in the lab, it's not such a big deal if it gets to be blastocyst on day five or day six or even sometimes day seven, because there is variety in nature in how long that process takes. But in terms of um, the natural circumstances, that, that little blastocyst is developing as the embryo goes from being what's called a zygote, which is the single cell embryo, to a cleavage stage embryo on day two to three, to a compacting embryo in morella on day four, morella meaning like blackberry because it's got lots of little cells, that's blackberry in Latin, to a blastocyst. And it's only the blastocyst that speaks the language of implantation. So embryos do not implant in the womb or anywhere else until they are a blastocyst. Which is so, why you wait till day five. Yeah, at least day five for an embryo transfer. And there are lots of reasons in IVF, fresh stimulated cycles, that we don't tend to do transfers on day six and day seven. They have nothing to do with the embryo and everything to do with the environment of the uterus that has been changed from the natural environment in response to the hormones that we give in IVF. So it's a very unnatural circumstance, an IVF stimulated cycle. There's nothing like it in nature. It's very man-made and a woman-made person orchestrated. In terms of putting an embryo back in IVF, we've worked out through science the best time to do it. But in terms of an ectopic, sometimes for some reason, as the embryo is traveling down the fallopian tube, the embryo encounters a barrier to getting to the uterus. Now, that barrier might be embryonic, that it's got some kind of issue that it hasn't been able to travel. It could be anatomical, that the fallopian tube has a blockage or some scarring from, say, for example, a past sexually transmitted infection or from endometriosis-related inflammation or from inflammation scarring after a gynecological procedure and infection or just random kind of changes in the shape of the fallopian tubes because we're all a little bit different and we can have congenital differences in our tubes. Some people have fallopian tubes that are more relatively straight and others have fallopian tubes that are more relatively curvy and what we call tortuous. And you would think that it would be a little bit more of a challenge for an embryo to get down a tortuous tube than it is to get down a, a straight tube. So there's lots of different factors and, of course, the factor of chance, which is one of these factors that affects every area of medicine, but particularly fertility. You know, not every embryo will do everything right in every circumstance. And while we can optimise the things that we can affect, there are many aspects of fertility that, unfortunately, we don't have much influence over, like how an embryo makes its way down a fallopian tube. So... When an embryo is ready to implant, but it's not in the right spot, that's when an ectopic pregnancy can happen. And is there any warning signs or symptoms that someone might feel when one's, when they've got an ectopic pregnancy? Yeah, there are signs that your doctor might pick up too before you feel anything as well. So one thing that we worry about with a early pregnancy test where the pregnancy hormone is rising slowly or the progesterone is rising in an abnormal way that it's not as high as we think it should be because progesterone is made from what we call 
chorionic villi. They're the um, cells that the embryo makes by making a nice placenta and planting well in the right spot. Both the embryo thrives and the placenta thrives. So the hormones of pregnancy are made by that placenta. So if your placenta is growing regularly, nicely in the right spot, we do expect your pregnancy hormone to approximately double approximately every 48 hours. It doesn't always play by the exact rules and exactly double, but that's a pretty good rule of thumb that that's what we expect to see with a normally developing pregnancy in the early stages and a normally developing placenta. And it's actually that HCG rise, that HCG hormonal rise that triggers the ovary to make progesterone. So in concert with that, we like to see a nice, healthy progesterone response from the ovary. When the pregnancy is in the wrong spot, it's not able to implant as well or as normally. So for example, a pregnancy in the tube might have a slower rising HCG level and in turn a lower progesterone. So when we see those signs on a blood test, even before a woman is symptomatic at all, we start to kind of prick up our ears thinking about ectopic pregnancy. In terms of other signs, there aren't really any early warning signs. Occasionally, women might experience bleeding. Because the embryo is not in the right spot, the lining of the and the progesterone is not necessarily rising in the way that should support the pregnancy, sometimes the endometrium, which is the lining of the uterus, doesn't have that sustenance that it should have in a pregnancy in the right spot. So, you know, you can have some early bleeding in pregnancy. Uh, And in terms of pain symptoms, it's one of those things that you can read a lot online. And I actually see many women who don't have an ectopic pregnancy, but who have some mild uterine cramping or have some mild pain around the ovary where you have your corpus luteum which is the cyst on the ovary that makes progesterone functionally that can be a little tender that worry they might have an ectopic and of course we take it seriously and check it out but many women do experience discomfort in early pregnancy and most of the time it isn't an ectopic pregnancy so pain can be an early symptom but it doesn't tend to happen until at least five or six weeks at that stage of pregnancy around five and six weeks that's when we start to worry that an ectopic, if it is in the fallopian tube, could rupture and it could burst because unlike the uterus, which is designed to expand, the fallopian tube is not designed to expand and it's not designed to have a baby in there. And unfortunately, even if it's a normal embryo and a normal baby, it's not going to survive in the fallopian tube and it's not going to be what we call a viable pregnancy. So our focus is on the health of the mother and making sure that she's okay so that in her next attempt at pregnancy she can hopefully be successful. You said earlier that these can happen in nature as well or naturally as well, not just in people receiving fertility treatment. I feel like I've heard about them more in people who've received fertility treatment. Is that possible? Yeah, it absolutely is because when you think about it, The fact that you've needed to have a fertility doctor involved in your care means that you are not kind of, you know, having the easiest time of getting pregnant. And a whole group of those risk factors we talked about, like having abnormal tubes, having blockages in the tubes from previous illnesses or diseases, having endometriosis, these are risk factors both for being in fertility treatment and for having an ectopic pregnancy. Ectopics do happen in IVF too, 
where an embryo goes up into the fallopian tube where they have been placed inside the womb, but they don't happen as often as they used to, which is really interesting. And the reason for that is that we are culturing embryos as blastocysts, uh, which Mm -hmm. hasn't been done in the very early days of IVF. Remember we were talking about the embryos being cultured to be kind of cleavage stage embryos in previous episodes just because the labs weren't good enough to have a blastocyst culture system at that point in time. And so we were putting embryos into the womb that weren't happy in the womb and where would they have been happy? In the fallopian tube because they were the right stage for an embryo in the fallopian tubes. They didn't like the womb so they made their way cleverly into the fallopian tube. Um, so that's an increased risk with cleavage stage embryos compared to blastocysts. And then the other thing about IVF is technology has improved vastly over the 40 years that IVF has been in practice. And we now have really powerful ultrasound. And I personally do 100% of my embryo transfers under ultrasound guidance. And you might be surprised to know that even when I was training early in my career, it was not uncommon for, especially in the older generation of doctors, to be used to doing touch technique only. So putting embryos inside the womb without looking with an ultrasound. Right, it's like just based on feel. Based on feel, but I guess that really presumes that most women are alike and every uterus is the same shape and size, which is clearly not true. So um, in terms of that, ultrasound guidance and placing the embryo exactly where you want it to go has reduced the risk of ectopic pregnancy. In terms of the other factors, we concentrate more on endometrial receptivity. We don't do embryo transfers on day six and seven in a stimulated cycle, even though technically you can, because the lining is not as receptive as it is on day five of a stimulated cycle. In women who we're worried about receptivity, we now have tests like, for example, endometrial receptivity array testing to figure out when they are most receptive. And that's a really useful test that I do sometimes use for women who have had trouble in IVF in the past in terms of having had embryo transfers that haven't worked to figure out their receptivity window and try and personalize their embryo transfer. And that's a really valid thing to do. And we can also look at the environment of the uterus really carefully by looking inside with what's called a hysteroscope, looking inside with a camera, making sure there's nothing about the uterine environment that makes it less receptive. So that when we do put a blastocyst in there, we can figure out Uh, that the blastocyst is coming home, so to speak, that it's coming to a place where it speaks the language of the endometrium and the endometrium speaks the language of the blastocyst because that's what needs to happen for a successful implantation. So dealing with inflammation, dealing with infection, dealing with different protein expression in different people after different amounts of time, all of these things can help us find the window of receptivity so that when we put a blastocyst back, it has every chance of thriving and surviving. What are the causes? Of ectopic pregnancy. So mainly yeah. what we talked about before. So fallopian tubal problems. Problems, Hormonal, yep. hormonal, hormonal imbalances. imbalances. So hormonal imbalances tend to be um, changes in our hormones that make the lining of the uterus less receptive. So the embryo wants to implant somewhere it shouldn't. Uh, abnormal mm-hmm. development of the embryo. So if it's an abnormal embryo and it's developed abnormally or it's taken too long to get to the uterus, um, then, you know, the uterus might reject the embryo and it might try and implant where it can. Previous ectopic pregnancy is a risk factor for future ectopic pregnancy and that probably vouches for the fact that people who've had an ectopic pregnancy tend to have an increased risk of having abnormal fallopian tubes. 
and Mm -hmm. having embryos that can implant in fallopian tubes. So in terms of that, the risk factor of of previous ectopic means that every single time you get pregnant after you've had an ectopic in your life, you're going to have a 15% chance of having another ectopic, which is actually pretty high. So uh, that's one of the reasons when we start to talk about treatments that we often do remove an ectopic pregnancy that's in a tube by removing the tube to prevent it happening again in the future and to deal with the ectopic pregnancy in a quick way that's sure to be effective. So if you've had inflammation in the tube, if you've had infection in the tube, if you've had surgery in the tube because you've had an ectopic and you didn't want to lose your tube and the doctor's cut into your tube, uh, that's an increased risk of scarring from that surgery that then leads to an increased risk of ectopic. And interestingly, smoking is a risk factor for ectopic pregnancy because women who smoke have impaired ciliary action and the toxins from the cigarettes, even in your fallopian tube, can reduce the embryo's transit time to the, uh, sorry, it has, can increase the embryo's transit time to the uterus. And what that means is it takes longer and that means that it's more likely to be an ectopic. So quitting smoking is a good way to decrease your risk of having an ectopic. There are other ways to decrease your risk, such as avoiding sexually transmitted infections. So if you're one of our patients or listeners who has not yet committed to getting pregnant but is interested in the topic, the best thing you can do is protect your sexual health and make sure that you don't get any STIs like chlamydia or gonorrhea by using condoms with new partners because if you protect your fallopian tubes, then they're less likely to be damaged and then you're less likely to have an ectopic. Also, management of endometriosis is really important. There's a lot of, I think almost I would call it a movement, Geordie, online with, uh, you know, kind of women who are coming forward with endometriosis because I think endometriosis. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I it think is endometriosis. what we're seeing. Um, it's got a lot of publicity recently and, you know, much belated really actually because endometriosis has been a condition that's been affecting women for a really long time without much mm reference or without much acknowledgement from the medical community and that's because you know again similar to IVF with ultrasound you know ultrasound misses about 50% of endometriosis cases because there's a spectrum of endometriosis from mild to severe and women move along that spectrum as their disease is untreated and what happens is if you can't see it you know then you don't diagnose it. And a lot of GPs no. you know, in the past have been less aware of endometriosis. And if a woman has had a normal scan but complains of discomfort and pain, um, you know, they may have done things like put the woman on the pill or if the woman didn't want to be on the pill, we'll say, well, it's probably normal spectrum period pain, which may or may not have been true. Anyway, endometriosis is progressive and one of the best things you can do to protect your fertility, you know, in terms of endometriosis is to get an early diagnosis have it managed. And look, medical management is extremely effective in preventing endo from getting worse. Not everyone needs to have a surgery. Not everyone wants to have a surgery. And certainly everyone wants to avoid multiple surgeries. So things like going on the pill, uh, you know, although it may not be the most sexy or fashionable thing to do, do prevent endometriosis from progressing and getting worse and can protect your fertility. So it is definitely worth talking to your doctor about it. Or if you're concerned that you might have endometriosis, which does affect one in 10 Australian women, get a referral to a gynecologist and have a proper discussion about it. 
it's really interesting, the endo. It's definitely changing. And like you said, we've actually got an episode on um, endometriosis that's not visible by ultrasound. So I can put links in the show notes for people interested in that as well. Going back to ectopics, I think what I found really interesting was until you got to smoking is really everything that is a risk factor is absolutely not anyone's fault. It's just something that happens in nature. Yeah, it is. And probably, you know, definitely in you know, years past, women used to die from ectopic pregnancy. You know, they just happen. They'd happen in a mm. tube. The tube would burst eventually if the ectopic didn't spontaneously resolve, which it can sometimes. Uh, but like an ectopic miscarriage, a spontaneous tubal abortion is the official term. Um, but, yeah, if it didn't resolve, then the tube would burst and the woman would bleed out and that would be that. And, you know, that ectopic pregnancies for that reason, that you know, it's certainly danger there. Mm-hmm. And while thankfully that rarely happens these days, at least in countries like ours, I'm sure it does happen elsewhere in the world uh, still to this day, but you can be in a situation where you have an acute emergency with an ectopic because fallopian tubes have an amazing blood supply and very vascular and when they burst they bleed and so you know and when I was a registrar in you know kind of manning the emergency departments of you know public hospitals and women came in in the middle of the night with severe onset of abdominal pain and and positive pregnancy tests you know you'd take them you know kind of sirens blazing in the middle of the night to hospital to the operating theatre and take that tube out and they'd often have a belly full of blood and sometimes need a blood transfusion. So that that is the sometimes outcome of ectopic pregnancy. Because we have really good ultrasounds and good, you know, doctor education and a very high index of suspicion, that doesn't usually happen these days. Uh, what is more common is we diagnose the ectopic by ultrasound and we manage the ectopic. You mentioned then just about taking the tube out. So that's one of the treatments? Look, by far and away... You know, and I'm biased as an IVF doctor, but by far and away, my favorite management of a tubal ectopic is get rid of that tube because that tube is going to cause trouble. That tube is unlikely to ever be normal again, having had an ectopic pregnancy in it. And that tube is, you know, likely to cause potentially another ectopic in that woman's future. And it's unlikely to be helpful for future fertility. And in terms of uh, that tube, you know, kind of staying in versus coming out. The other way that we manage ectopic pregnancies apart from keyhole surgery to remove a tube, which literally takes me about 40 minutes and it's done, is um, what we call chemotherapy. So we can give methotrexate, which is a potent cell-killing chemotherapy, and that can kill the cells of the ectopic pregnancy. It also has side effects, you know, killing, you know, dividing cells elsewhere in the body like you know you can get gut effects because it can affect the lining of the gut you can have transient uh, you know skin effects or loose hair and those kind of things because all of those rapidly dividing cells are also affected when you give that um, medication you don't necessarily inject it directly into the ectopic you tend to give it what we call systemically so all over the body in an injection but my main issue with methotrexate in IVF particularly is you have to sit out of treatment for at least three months after you've had it because you need to wash that effect out of your body. It will affect the quality of your eggs. I've personally mm-hmm. treated patients where I've observed that quality of the eggs after methotrexate use has been poor for much longer than the textbooks say 
that it will be. So the textbooks say it takes about 100 days to develop an egg and after that time has passed, you know, the egg should be fine. But anecdotally, you know, in some people I have seen methotrexate cause poor egg quality beyond what the textbooks say it should and then subsequently have good embryo quality again once it's out of your system. So you can really write off somewhere between three and five months of your fertility journey by using methotrexate. And depending on a woman's age, that can be extremely valuable time wasted. Mm. I am not a fan of methotrexate for that reason. Having said that, there are places where methotrexate is the only thing to do. So we've talked a lot about tubal ectopic pregnancies where we have a choice because it's relatively easy to remove a tube. But you can also have ectopics in other places where pregnancy shouldn't implant, but they do. So some dangerous places are things like cervical ectopics where a pregnancy tries to implant in the cervix, cesarean scar ectopics where instead of actually being in the cavity of the uterus in the endometrium, a embryo implants in the cesarean scar and is trying to you know, bury into the muscle of the womb. And very rarely... Uh, you know, you can see abdominal ectopics, which are ectopics outside of the uterus in the pelvic cavity. They're exceedingly rare, but they can happen. So, you know, in other places, ectopic pregnancies sometimes do need to be treated with methotrexate. And sometimes we need to inject that methotrexate directly into the ectopic pregnancy so that we can get rid of the ectopic pregnancy and save the uterus. With the fallopian tubal ectopic, you talk about removing the tube. What happens? So you have a surgery which is in general laparoscopic. If it was the middle of the night and it was a a big emergency and everything had to be done super quickly, um, sometimes that might be an open surgery. And certainly in days of York before keyhole surgery was the bread and butter of gynecology, it used to be open surgery. But in terms of uh, laparoscopic keyhole surgery, we put a little port inside the belly button and introduce a, a camera. We fill the tummy with carbon dioxide gas and we suck out any blood that's in the tummy from the ectopic if it started to rupture. And then what we do is it takes two doctors. So you have your, your surgeon and your surgical assistant. And together with four hands, we gently remove that fallopian tube. So we cut the fallopian tube using electro energy and we remove it through one of those little keyhole port sites and we make sure there's no bleeding and that's that. The other thing we haven't talked about, Jordi, which is more of a concern in IVF with multiple embryo transfer or in context of trying naturally to have sex when you also have an embryo going back through IVF in a thaw cycle that's a natural thaw cycle or an ovulation induction thaw cycle is what's called heterotopic pregnancy. So heterotopic pregnancy is where you have one pregnancy in the womb and one in the tube. And that happens at a frequency of one in 40,000 pregnancies in nature, but it is more common to one in 10,000 pregnancies in IVF, uh, specifically in in cases where, where those two scenarios happen. So when you have a pregnancy uh, where we are at all concerned that there might be a heterotopic pregnancy, one in the uterus and one in the fallopian tube, then we have no choice about treatment. We cannot use methotrexate as it will kill both and we have to go in and remove that tube. When you want to get pregnant again after you've been treated for an ectopic, are there any special things to take into consideration or can you just go ahead as normal? Look, you can go ahead as normal and you don't necessarily have to wait any time out. But what I would say is uh, that you need to have an early ultrasound 
at the five-week mark because, as we mentioned, it is more common to have an ectopic if you've had one before. So we like you to have an ultrasound. I often ask my patients to have two ultrasounds, one to confirm the pregnancy's location, which we can see earlier, and then the normal one at six weeks to look at whether there's a heartbeat. And, of course, like any pregnancy, if you have a negative blood group and you've had an ectopic pregnancy, you need to have some anti-D hormone afterwards. And I think we've got a previous episode on on that and we certainly do have an anti-D information sheet on our Women's Health Melbourne website. Thank you so much, Raylia, for that information, something that comes up all the time, I'm noticing. <laughs> 